All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? What the fuck, Nicks? Out in the streets. Fighting the good fight. Thank you for doing that. It's fucking scary, crazy, righteous, chaotic, out of control, focused. A lot of things going on at once. And I tend to be, at this point, somewhat paralyzed with grief and trying to compartmentalize. I don't want to be at the guy at the protest crying about his own problems. But I will throw some ideas out there for you in this time of uh, righteous indignation, peaceful protesting, fury, a few places where you can um, kick in a few shekels, contribute a few dollars to show your support. These are places that make a difference. Black Voters Matter Fund. They work directly and successfully on increasing the political power of black communities through voter registration and engagement on the local level, not just during presidential elections. That's blackvotersmatterfund.org. NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Police reform and racial justice efforts need litigation and advocacy to be successful. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, N-A-A-C-P-L-D-F, N-A-A-C-P-L-D-F.org. And, of course, the um, ACLU will continue to be helpful for maintaining the First Amendment rights of protesters and fighting legal challenges in court. It's a charity I support yearly. ACLU.org is where you can go to uh, to do that. So I'm still, yeah, before I get too far, look, you know, with things coming undone at the seams, I don't really know what you, you people want to listen to or what, you know, what is relevant to you. But today, uh, my guest is G.E. Smith, um, who you know is the former band leader on Saturday Night Live. He's also been the guitarist for Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Roger Waters, Tina Turner, among many others. He's got a record coming out in August called Stony Hill. It's a collaboration with soul singer Leroy Bell. And, you know, I got the opportunity to talk to a guitar player before the shit hit the fan in my life and in the world. Well, obviously the shit has been hitting in the fan. The shit has been hitting the fan in the world for for a while, but uh, but you know what I'm saying. So I I took it and I talked to him, and it's uh you know it's me talking to G. E. Smith about guitars and stuff. Maybe maybe that'll be nice for you. I don't know. Maybe you want to break. I uh, I've been ranting and raving about encroaching fascism in this country for what since 2016. I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't think these protests are going to stop, and I'm not sure they should. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of injustice. And I've just got to protect my mind from 
Hopelessness. You know what I'm saying? And now I've become very focused on my cat, Monkey, who is ill, old. Some days are better than others. But in this void, in this absence of Lynn here, you know, I wake up at four in the morning and I go through the memories. Most of them good. It's hard. It hurts. I'm not obsessing about bad things. But then I realize I got a sick old cat downstairs. So I've gotten into the habit where I'll go downstairs and lay on the couch and see if Monkey wants to get on my chest and lay there. My old sick cat. And, you know, just like love the cat. It's weird, you know. It's weird to be a guy who's 56 years old and is just sort of getting the hang of what love feels like. To give it and get it. You know, receive it and let it out. And I start, I just started realizing, like, well, I don't know how much time I got with this cat. So I go down there, like, four in the morning with a blanket, and I lay on the couch and hang out with Monkey for a couple hours, in and out of sleep, thinking about life, thinking about Lynn, thinking about the end of the world, listening to my cat purr, and then that kind of levels it off. The purr of an old cat is kind of like a, some sort of universal frequency of calm. I don't even know how he does it. I can't do it. A purr's got, like, there's several different layers of sound going on. Sounds like two or three different layers of sound for a good, wheezy old cat. So I've been doing that, just talking to cats, just yelling at monkey, like, what's going on? Are you dying? Is today the day? Are we dying today? Do we have to go to the vet and die today, monkey? So, G.E. Smith has this new album coming out. It's a collaboration with soul singer Leroy Bell. You guys know him. You might have been annoyed by him on Saturday Night Live. He brought that up. Some people were very annoyed by him. But this is me and G.E. Smith uh, coming right up. The system supporting creative people is broken and the COVID-19 crisis is making it more obvious than ever. It puts algorithms over ideas, quantity over quality, and what's easy to sell over what's good. It puts money, brands, and just about everything else over the people who actually make the things that inspire us. Patreon offers a better way to help creators build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their most passionate fans. It gives them freedom to do their best work, the stability they need to build an independent creative career, and a chance to create a more meaningful connection with a supportive audience. In turn, fans get access to an exclusive community premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. My buddy Tom, Tom Sharpwing, is one of the funniest people around and a great broadcaster, is one of the best broadcasters. If you love his stuff and you want to get exclusive audio once a month, you got to support his Patreon for the best show. It's highly worth it. Funny guy. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued together. Check out Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. We're also sponsored by Honey. Honey. 
We all shop online a lot. But did you know you can make online shopping even better? You can with Honey. Honey is the free online shopping tool that saves you money online. Honey automatically finds the best promo codes and applies them to your cart, which makes online shopping finally feel as easy as it's supposed to be. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites like Target, Macy's, DoorDash, whatever. When you check out, this little box drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons, wait a few seconds for it to scan for every promo code on the internet and watch the prices drop. Honey has found more than $2 billion in savings for its over 17 million members. If you're like me, when you want to buy stuff online, you just search for it. But when I do that, I'm basically going with the option that comes up first. But with Honey, I can get the option that saves me the most money. And the thing I really love is that you can add items to your drop list. Then Honey sends you a notification when the price drops. Not using Honey is literally passing up free money. It's free to use and installs in just a few seconds. Plus, it's now part of the PayPal family. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash WTF. That's joinhoney.com slash WTF. What's up, GE? How you feeling? Everything's good, Mark. Looks like a comfortable situation up there. Where where are you? Amagansett, out on Long Island. Oh yeah? Yeah. But you don't come from there. You just that's where you settled, huh? That's yes. I've been here for for a long time. Forty years. Is that by the water? It's not far from the water. You don't really want to live right on the water unless it's just a summer house. Uh-huh. Because the, the the wind off the ocean just tears the house apart, you know. Oh really? Really, it's really rough. You know, the, the people that live right by the water, they're just spending money all the time. Fixing the house? Yeah. So where'd you grow up? In Pennsylvania. Like rural? Stroudsburg. Where is it in relation to a, a city? It's, it's, it's in the Northeast. If, if you're coming across Route 80 yeah. from anywhere in the West, when you get right to the New Jersey border, it's called Delaware Water Gap. Oh, okay. And it's it's the next town west of that. Yeah. And when I was a kid, it was just a tiny little town. Yeah. You know? But now, like every place else, it's it's all grown up, and there's lots of people there. And there's about a thousand people that, when they were working, commuted every day to the city. Oh, is that it's one of those commuter towns? Yeah. Did your dad work in the city? No, no, no. My dad worked right there. Yeah. He worked right there. He was a uh, an engineer, a structural. And chemical engineer, and he, he worked, you know, for a big company there. And, oh, really? Fact, Not for yeah. the city? Just for a big uh, no. corporation? Yep. So, and 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 your mom, was did she work too? Yep. My grandmother, who I grew up with, um, had a gift shop in ah. town, Holiday Gift Center, and my mom always worked there with her. Oh, that's nice. Like cards yeah. and stuff? All that kind of stuff, you know, little glass. Yeah. Things, you know, uh all kinds of stuff, jewelry, you know. Yeah, the general. The, you don't see many of those general gift shops anymore. There was always one of those where it was just like a little bit, a little bit of everything, little tchotchkes that you know people could walk through and go like, "Oh, that would be nice, right? Easy." Yeah. yeah. And when when I was a kid, at least it was a big uh, summer area. A lot of people from the city, yeah, had second homes there. Yeah. And so in the summer, it'd be crowded. And, the, and there was a lot of uh, people around 
a lot of jazz musicians from the uh, city. From Philadelphia or there. from uh or from uh New York? From New York City. Uh-huh. Would come there in the summertime. So when I was a kid, you know, when I was like 12, 13, 14, I got to hear a lot of great music. Really? Um, Where'd they play? Out in a, they have a, a, an outdoor thing? Nope. There's a, a bar, a place called the Deerhead Inn. Uh-huh. That that was a jazz spot. And they you let know? you in? No, but I could sit on the porch. Ah. And like, sometimes I'd go over there in the afternoon and sit out on the porch and these guys would be in there rehearsing. And I heard uh, a lot of great jazz players. Uh, uh, John Coates, this piano player. Pharaoh Saunders, the sax player. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Zoot Sims, Al Cohn, you know, a lot of those yeah. guys from the 50s, 60s jazz scene were there in the summertime. Wow. And you just like took it in. Were you playing guitar yet? When did you start that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I started playing. I got a guitar when I was four. Four? And I, yep. There were, uh, I went down in the basement with my mother to do, she was going to do the laundry. Yeah. And there was an old guitar hanging on the wall. I said, what's that? She said, that's called a guitar that used to belong to your Uncle George. And uh, I said, can I have it? She said, sure. It's been hanging up there for a long time. So she gave it to me and I just got obsessed with it. What was that guitar? It was just a uh, cheap acoustic guitar. Like a Harmony or a K or something? Collegiate. Collegiate uh-huh. brand. Uh-huh. It was. But like a <laughs> Harmony. Yeah. You know, probably made in Chicago. Uh-huh. Like a lot of that stuff was back then. And... Uh, and that yeah, started I wish I still like that guitar, but it's long gone. Oh yeah, you, I have a I have an old K from the fifties, yeah. for and a K acoustic that you know, yeah. it's, you know, they, it, they break stuff. Yeah, I mean, it sounds okay. You know, it's got a spray paint. It's like the pick guard is painted on. It's like not even right, a, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got yeah, that. A lot, from, of the, a lot of the great blues records were made on those kind of guitars. You know, I know they. You can feel that. I you can you hear the sound. I once interviewed uh, Taj Mahal in here. Yeah. And uh, he picked the thing up. He didn't want to play, but he picked that thing up for two seconds and played like a, a Skip James riff and moved it and kind of tra- you know, tracked it into the African groove in like three seconds. You know, he just brought the thing right. to life. Like it was almost like a, a time machine. It was fucking yep. unbelievable. No, Taj is great. And he's, he's, a, he's a real musicologist. You yeah. Know? He really knows. He's a very, very smart guy and knows his stuff. Uh, there's a bar here in Amagansett in this town where I live called the Stephen Talk House. Yeah. And they get, especially during the summer when all the people from the city are out here, they get big acts, you know, yeah. national acts. And I went there one time to see Taj. This is probably like in the 80s. And uh, he had a band and they were great and they were playing. And at some point he got up from where he was in front of the band and he picked up an acoustic guitar, an old national, you know, metal body national. Yeah. And he kind of went up in the back of the stage and leaned against the wall. And he played this this uh, old blues song. I think it's a Charlie Patton song. It's called Peavine Blues. Yeah. And he just played it all alone. No microphones. Yeah. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. That's wild, man. I, 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 I When people can channel yeah. that stuff. I had a similar experience in Tucson, Arizona. At the Tucson, Arizona Blues Society, I was visiting my brother, and they had paid John Hammond Jr. to come out. So it was just like 40 people in there. And he did the same thing with uh, 
hellhounds on my trail. Just yeah, him. he does the Robert Johnson stuff. Man, and like you, to hear that stuff played properly is yep. fucking crazy, man. It really is. Yeah, it really I, is. He's got he's a he's really an interesting player too. But so wait, now wait, is Smith the, your real the family name? Yeah, Smith. Um, my family's Lebanese. My father was Lebanese. Yeah, and uh, I grew up very much in that. Like the food, you know, because I said my grandmother was there, you know, yeah. uh, my dad's mom. So she was 100% Lebanese. My father's 100% Lebanese. And they, so I grew up with that food and that kind of atmosphere, you know. And uh, the family name had been Haddad. Uh huh. And Haddad in Arabic means blacksmith. Yeah. And, and the legend was that when my great grandfather, whose name was Boutrous Haddad, when he came over, yeah. He didn't speak English, but they had written on a piece of paper in Arabic and then in English, Haddad, and then they'd written blacksmith underneath uh -huh. it. Right. And the legend is he gets to Ellis Island and the and the, the guy, the immigration guy, looks at it and he says, well, what do you want to be, black or smith? And he didn't even know what the guy was saying and he just pointed at smith and that's how we wound up being smith. <laughs> that's a good story. Yeah, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. So when you start playing, when do you start, when do you get the first guitar that you make a choice to get? So when I was seven, yeah. by then I, I had figured out some chords and uh, it was um, the, the folk music thing was happening. You know, what they call the folk scare. Yeah. You know, <laughs> folk scare. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Who calls it uh, that? <laughs> oh, a lot of, a lot of guys in the business call it that, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, I was learning that kind of stuff. And uh, a woman was at our, came over to our house and she saw me playing that collegiate yeah. know, instrument. And she said, oh, you, you can play. You know, she said, do, do you want a real guitar? I'm seven. What am I going to say? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so then a couple of days later, she shows up with, with a little Martin, you know, a good acoustic guitar. Wow. And not only that, she brought along her the, the girl that was working for her as a nanny who was like maybe a 14, 15 year old Irish girl. Uh huh. And she showed me some stuff, this Irish girl. Uh huh. She showed me how to finger pick. Really? You know, which was so great. Because I, I, I want to do that better. Oh man. Before that, I was, I was playing with a pick. Yeah. And, and I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but she showed me that what they call Travis picking, you know, it's like the alternating bass with the thumb. Yeah. And then they, you pick out the melody with your fingers. All three fingers? That was great. I was really lucky that, that I got that when I was that young. I talked to guys that do the blues two-finger picking thing. A lot of guys, the real guys, would do just one finger. Yeah. Thumb and one finger. But I use all all five. See, I got this big, long finger now. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I do these rakes with that, you know. Hrang, you know? Oh, that's not for Coke? <laughs> no. That was a that used to be the thing that they did in the Yeah, you know, I know it was. Yeah, people would always say that to me, but no, yeah. I always just let my fingernails grow long to play, make, you know. Yeah, do the picking. So yeah. so the Irish girl showed you how to finger pick and then you yeah. locked into that. That's a good thing to knock out when you're young, huh? I was lucky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then what what how does the how does the style evolve? In in January of nineteen sixty three, it was my eleventh birthday. Yeah, and I, I wanted an electric guitar. Right. So my mother took me around. There was a couple of little music stores out in the country, or you know, and we looked at some electric guitars, and we found 
a uh, used Fender Telecaster. Yeah. And and we got it. It was $100. I was born in January 1952. And some years later, when I found out you could take the neck off the guitar and see yeah. the date, the guitar is January of 1952. No shit. Yeah. You're and both I born in the same month. <laughs> and um, I was then starting to play in bands. That's got to be one of the oh, first ones, right? Yeah, pretty early. 1950 was mm. the first one. A first so telecaster or first broadcaster? Broadcaster was 1950. Broadcaster and Esquire. Right. In 1950. Then by 51, they're making no more broadcasters. They're making Esquires and Telecasters. And the tele difference was with the Telecasters, they added that pickup? Telecaster had a had the neck pickup on it, too. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Funny. My guitar says Esquire, but it's got the two pickups. Huh. But they did make, you know, Fender always just made whatever they needed to make that day, you know, use all the parts that they had and right. ship them out. So I figure it must have been one of those or I don't know. But, so um, so that was the guitar. And then uh, yeah. you're 11 and you've got a, a Telecaster and you're playing in bands already? Yes, there was uh, uh, some older folks, uh, yeah. um, probably like in their 30s, you know, and, yeah. and they had a band. And there were so few musicians there that where you and lived. It, and it was such a small town. And yeah. my, my parents knew everybody. So my dad knew these people. And I got into this little uh, band. And it was like, you know, uh, kind of lounge music, you know, yeah, standards, yeah. sure, old time stuff, and some polka music. Cause yeah. it's Pennsylvania, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was an accordion in the band, a guy with an acoustic guitar. It was hysterical. But you learned those chords? You learned that I learned groove? All, all, the... I learned, yeah, see, that was great. I got, right away I started learning um, songs. And the polka you know? groove. Like, Not just um, blues-based songs mm -hmm. at all. But, you know, like standards. We yeah. changed Nat King Cole songs. And right. Uh, Louis Armstrong. My grandmother listened to Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, uh, Duke Ellington, that kind of stuff. Sure. And so I, I had heard that stuff since I was a baby on her floor. Yeah. So I had that in my head. I had, I had those, that sound in my ear. Yeah. And that was very fortunate, you know, to be able to st start out with that good music. But yeah, but you're like, but it seems to me that the the core of who you are as a guitar player is a blues trip, right? Yeah, yeah, and, that's that's the music that I that I really loved. And then, like you know, when when the Beatles came out, about a year after I got that Telecaster, the Beatles came out, and I liked the Beatles, and I thought they were yeah. really cool, but I didn't want to play that. Yeah, you know that that. But then when the Rolling Stones came out <laughs> yeah. and the Kinks, right. when I first heard you really got me, that boom, wah, 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 wah. Yeah, went, yeah. Oh, yes, I get it now. Electric guitar, that's what it does. So that's the rock element. Where do you get the where do you get your first dose of real guitar blues? Um, when when the Stones came out, yeah. the Yardbirds and those right. bands. Oh yeah. I would, you know, obsessively read the the album covers. Right. And they, you know, the old, you know, sure. LP. Yeah. You know, and that had who wrote the songs. Right. And I'm seeing these names, you know, and I'm reading interviews with, with the Stones and, and the Yardbirds and the Who and, and those bands. And they're talking about Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Elmore James. Right. So then I went and got those records. Yeah. 
That's I weird. Those records from the little music store in town. You know, you got them. You got them to, uh, to. Oh, they ordered them for you. Yeah, yeah. I had to order. They didn't have those in stock. You know, they were hard to find. You know, even when I was a kid. I mean, there were collections and stuff, but uh, you know, the real stuff is. Uh, so that so it was Muddy and Howlin' Wolf, the regular guys, Elmore James. Elmore James, I, I loved Elmore James. Yeah, it's great. So you're I fucking around Muddy. with that slide. Yeah, slide. Which I, of course I didn't know that it was slide. I didn't know what that was when yeah. I first heard it. You know, yeah, yeah. Then, in the middle six, 64, 65, I heard that. I didn't know what it was. But then I saw Brian Jones play with the Stones. I saw him play slide, and I went, "Oh, he's got this thing on his finger." Uh, that where, makes that sound. Where'd you see the Stones? I saw them in uh, 1965 in Atlantic City at the Steel Pier. And uh, the McCoys opened. Hang huh. on, Sloopy. Sure. You know, Rick Derringer. Rick Derringer, yeah. Yeah. So that was, so. what was that? Do you remember that being, uh, in terms of in looking back, I mean, you've played with everybody and you've seen everybody. But at that age, at that time, those guys, was it a great fucking show? It was to me, it was like the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. You know? Yeah, yeah. I love the songs. I also that year saw The Who. Ah, uh, and sixty-five. That sixty-five. Yeah. Oh, and that wow. was um, that changed my life. You know, years later when I got to work with all these people, yeah. you know, I would always ask, especially the English guys. Yeah. When you were coming up, I asked Jagger. I asked David Bowie. Uh, a bunch of different guys. I said, when you were first coming up, now, let's leave your band out of it, but who was the best live band? Every single one of them said The Who. Really? Yeah. Nobody ever said anything else. The that, Who. That's wild. Of course. When I, asked, when I asked Jagger that, I didn't even finish the question. He just went, The Who. So they all like to watch, they all went to watch The Who. Yeah, The Who live, because... Great songs. They could all really play and they could sing. They could yeah. really sing just like the record because Townsend and Entwistle would sing the background vocals and Daltrey singing the lead. They had the harmonies. They were doing it, you know? And, they and could he, really play that stuff live. And oddly, you, you know, the sound, I mean, no one plays guitar like that guy. Nope. Right? It's some sort of like power, rhythm, lead, hybrid. It's rhythm, lead, yeah. yeah. It's... it's um, he he was he was really unique, and he always said Townsend always said you know that he was a, a banjo player first, but not like country finger picking banjo, skiffle, plectrum banjo, you know, yeah. with, with a pick. Yeah. So he learned all those rang 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 things from right playing banjo, yeah. and then translated it onto the guitar, uh, uh, and you know, obviously a great songwriter and a very angry guy you know so that anger came out in the music and they were just great you know you know their song i can't explain yep you know that, the who record you listen to that I, I mean i bought that 45 when it came out in 65 yeah you listen to that record that's live in the studio there's yeah. no overdubs on that record when 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 townsend and Antwistle come in with the background but well i can't explain yeah you hear the compression, you you hear yeah. the the cymbals go away because they went up to their microphones and the drums weren't bleeding anymore. You know? Right, and right, you, yeah, yeah. You hear it on yeah. the record. When when the guitar solo comes on, 
the rhythm guitar stops because he's playing the solo now. He can't play rhythm guitar. Yeah, yeah. That's an amazing record, but that really shows, you know, how good they were live. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I came to the Who late. I liked some of the, I, you know, I always like the Who, but I was like not a fanatic, you know, when I was a kid. But now, you know, that live at Leeds and all of it is pretty amazing. Yeah, his anger is great. You work with Roger Waters for a while. That guy's angry too. I talked to him too. He's yeah, angry. He's, a, he's an angry he's dude. <laughs> he's another guy, real smart guy. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah, real poet, real political yep. activist, got a real chip on his shoulder for fairly yep. righteous reasons. Yep. It was funny because I talked to him, you know, he's one of these guys, a lot of times you talk to these dudes, you know, who are known for one thing, a singular thing, and they, but they always think they're doing their best work now, you know, of course. So, sure. yeah. So he tells me, he's like, I don't want to talk about Pink Floyd. And I'm like, what are, you, what are we going right. to fucking do then, right? So, but like within five minutes, he was talking about Pink Floyd. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Yeah, right I, worked, I worked with Roger for, for six years. Six years? Yeah, we went all over the world, you know, doing the wall. Yeah, that must have been. Now, how, you know, in, in doing something like that, so you're playing the Gilmore parts, basically? No. no. I played a lot of bass in the show. Oh, wow. Because Roger was, was acting. Interesting. I, I did play some guitar. Yeah. But uh, uh, there's a guy named Dave Kilminster uh -huh. that plays with Roger, who does the Gilmore thing. Oh, okay, Perfect. okay. So you're playing... He just... He's got it. Great, great musician. And Snowy White was also in the band. So there were three guitar players. Uh-huh. But I played bass on on a, probably about 80% of the show because Roger was, was acting. You know, The Wall was very much a theatrical sure. performance. You and know? people love that thing, man. That must yeah, be... man. I've never seen fanatical fans like those, like those Pink Floyd, Roger Waters fans. No kidding. They are fanatical. Yeah, it's a, it runs deep with them. They, you know, even when I worked with with Bob Dylan, who obviously has very fanatical fans. Yeah, you know, in a kind of a different way. Yeah, they're all like seventy now. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them are seventy, but there, there's younger ones too. You know, but what always really got me was like like with Bob and and with Roger. There's people that really think that that song was written for them specifically. Sure. Right. Even though they knew that Bob didn't know them or anything, right. they, Bob wrote that for me. It speaks to him. It, beyond speaking to him, it's a, it's a weird kind of obsession. No kidding. Know? Well, the thing yeah. about the wall, you know, and, and that album in particular, it's sort of a, a kind of timeless encapsulation of uh, an adolescent anger that goes yeah. all through your life. And I think that, you know, the possibility of that continuing to attract generations of younger people forever is probably pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. When when we would play, you know, I mean, obviously with, with, with Roger, we played the big places, you know, we, we'd have minimum 25, 30,000 people at yeah. any show up to 90,000, 100,000, you know, depending on where it was outdoors. Um and the audience range would be from in their seventies to young teenagers. Right. And they all knew the words. Yeah. Everybody sang the songs. And yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's powerful. So what's this dynamic with um like, you know, in terms of you got Muddy, you got Elmore, and you got, you know, uh Hal and Wolf. Yeah. But like I've seen you speak about this uh, this Bloomfield obsession. Yes. 
Now, like, you know, he's a guy like kind of fascinates me. So do you think that that first Paul Butterfield album, that's the one that kind of blew your mind out in terms of how you approach guitar? Definitely. Um, that record, which from everything I've ever been able to find out, they started recording right at the end. It's 1964. Yeah. And nobody can imagine now how that's unimaginable that a bunch of, you know, these young white guys from Chicago were so into that music. They had been hanging out in the clubs. They knew Muddy. They knew Wolf. Mm -hmm. They they had gotten up on stage and sat in with them. Yeah, yeah, little Walter. And and they were smart enough. Butterfield did this. You know, he when he put that band together, he hired Sam Lay and Jerome Arnold, the drummer and the bass player, from Howlin' Wolf's band. Right. And I just saw the other night in uh, a little interview with, with Sam Lay. And he said, well, yeah, the reason I went with, with Butterfield is because he offered me $20 a show. And with Wolf, I got $7 a show. <laughs> so it was just like a financial thing for him, you know, <laughs> yeah, better yeah. but yeah, that, that record is, is to me really groundbreaking. Like in my mind, in my world, that's right up there with like the Beatles or something, you know, right. That's right. That's a life changing record for me. So you're saying that this was the first example of a, a, a bunch of white kids who weren't just covering the songs. They were living the life they, and, yeah. and, and directly, you know, in mentorship with the original guys. Yeah. Yeah. They, and, and Bloomfield's playing on that record. It's so, I mean, it's very stylistically correct. He's playing the blues, right? You know, right. But he's playing it um, so technically advanced, right? From almost anything that had been played before, almost. Mm-hmm. You know, there there were people. Hubert Sumlin, right? Howlin' Wolf, yeah, played some stuff. There's a there's a Howlin' Wolf song called Louise, yeah, that was recorded in I think '61 or something, where Wolf. It's a great song. Wolf's singing great. But Hubert plays a solo in that song that says everything anybody's going to say for the next 10 years. About Bluefield, Clapton, yeah. Jimmy Page, whoever you want to talk about. Yeah. Hubert's solo on Louise says it all. That's the template? That's Yep. <laughs> to that, me. Yeah. I got to check that out because I've listened to yeah. a lot of stuff, but I can't identify that in my head. And Yeah, like, people I, don't know that song, but listen to that and listen to... Hubert solo, the way he comes in and the notes he chooses, and it's just brilliant. Yeah. Are you friends with uh, Vivino? Oh, sure. Yeah. I know Jimmy, like, because I used to do, you know, I'm a comic. I do Conan a lot, and Jimmy would always, you know, let me play one of his guitars and show me licks and stuff. He's got a lot of great guitars. Yeah. And he's also, you know, he's also one of those guys, not unlike you, you know, he, he, you know, he did, he does, he studied the guys, right? Oh, yeah. So, you know, he, you know, if you've got a question, he can resolve it for you. But he produced that, uh, I think he, he produced a record for Hubert later on. Yeah. Yeah. He did a bunch of stuff with Hubert. I got to be good friends with Hubert. Yeah. uh, That was a real honor, you know? Yeah, he's an um, interesting guitar player. He was interesting and real wonderful guy. Um, what about Bloomfield? No, I never met never met Bloomfield. Yeah, but Hubert, you got to know him, huh? He lived a long yeah, time. Yeah, Hubert, I got to know, uh, and we we would do gigs, and 
a couple of times I picked him up and we, we would have like maybe drive from New York down to Washington DC or something oh, yeah. and him in the car. So we really got to talk. And, oh, that's you know, beautiful, man. Yeah, it was great. So you heard some of the good stories, huh? He had like a kind of stock repertoire yeah. of stories. Yeah, they do. Tell. But but we had spent enough time together that, that he got away from those. And, and we really had some good talks. He, you know, he he really he was a very expressive guy. And, and, and he told me some great stuff. That's great. Yeah, he I taught me to... a great what? chicken recipe. He taught me. A great thing how to cook because he, he was a, a good cook I oh think. yeah is it simple yeah. yeah it's simple yeah simple thing you got you know you get one of those rotisserie chickens yeah the mark it's already cooked and you bring it home and you cut it up and you got to carefully take the skin off yeah you know and then you put a bunch of you melt some butter in a big iron skillet yeah and you fry that skin and and you fry up some of the chicken meat. Yeah. And you take the wings and you fry the wings in that butter, you know, so they get really crispy and yeah. good. Man, it's good. I just had that last night. <laughs> Hubert Sumlin's chicken. Hubert Sumlin's chicken. Oh, yeah. I talked to Buddy Guy and he's got a, a bunch of, he's got one of those repertoire, the Blues Man repertoire. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's amazing. He is amazing. Both him and Hubert really kind of like, they go out there, man. There's nothing, you know, kind of, uh, you, you, average it's not a matter of average but they take real risks i mean they 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 do some weird shit on their guitars oh yeah buddy i I made a, a record with buddy with yeah. um with the saturday night live band yeah he when i was doing the, the tv show uh after i was on i started in 1985 right and after i was on a couple of years the show had gotten pretty successful yeah, I remember and, seeing you. You always you were like the first thing everyone saw, almost. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, that was nice. You know, they Lauren gave me that spot there. Lauren Michaels, the producer. Yeah, he gave me those little spots, and and I really owe a great debt to him. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. That you know, there's nothing as powerful as TV yeah. in the United States. Yeah. And uh, that that really got people to to know me and and what I was playing and stuff. But anyway, after we'd been on like two years, maybe three years by about 88. Yeah. Uh, I could get a guitar player who was in town, anybody that was passing through town and they would sit in with the band and this wouldn't be announced or anything. Oh yeah. I remember that. The yeah. camera would come up and there would be Hubert Sumlin yeah. or David Gilmore or Johnny Winter or um, Eddie Van Halen, you know, right. all different kind of, but just great guitar players. Yeah. And that, that that was wonderful to yeah get to do that and play with all those different guys and get to hang out with them and stuff that was because i'm a fan you know yeah of course so I'm but you fan. got to you got to actually do a record with uh buddy huh got to do right yeah so so we had buddy guy on he was yeah. in town playing and uh he liked the band the musicians in in the saturday night live band only a corporation like nbc could afford to hire that band right because they're like the best they're all great jazz guys. Yeah. You know, I'm this bar band guitar player. Yeah. And I get to be in that band with these incredible musicians. Yeah. I learned so much there. Yeah, it's, it you must know. be nice to you know, be to have that behind you. I mean, to have a band backing you. Oh, they, man. They, they're never going to let you fall down, right? Nope. nope. <laughs> I, 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 had to, I had to work to keep up with them. Yeah, me. I believe you. you know, to, to try to like play up to their standards. Which record did you do with Buddy? It's called, uh, I think it's called The Real Deal. Okay. The live record, we did two nights in New York City and two nights in Chicago. 
at Buddy's Club. We did some great stuff. I got him to do an Elmore James song. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, things like that. Like, not from maybe his normal repertoire. And um, we were, one night we were playing and Buddy was just on. Yeah. And he was, just the sound he was getting, you know, the electric, it just filled the air. Yeah. You know, it was just yeah. incredible. And he hits a note and he holds his guitar up in the air and he looks at me and he goes, man, I got some extortion on my amp tonight. <laughs> I said, extortion on my amp. And I used to think when those those guys yeah. would say those kind of things, because Hubert would say stuff like that all the time. Yeah. They knew exactly what they were saying. It's poetry. Right. It's poetry. <laughs> yeah. These guys are geniuses, you know? <laughs> yeah, Listen yeah. to Sonny Boy Williamson's records. He is a poet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fantastic lyrical content. He was funny, too. And they too. talk like that. Yeah. The guys, the real blues guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Telecaster thing and the Bloomfield thing, I mean, I saw you talk about your, uh, the G.E. Smith uh, signature telly. Right. Which I, you know, I'd never seen it before. Now I feel like I need to find one. Um. But that commitment to the Telecaster is sort of interesting. So, because Bloomfield eventually went to a 59 Les Paul, right? Yes. Yeah. And I'm a big yeah. uh, Peter Green guy. You, you yeah. Peter, Like Peter Green, what, what do you think about him? Fabulous. Are you kidding? The Supernatural? You yeah. You know that song? Yeah. Supernatural? What is that? Nobody else ever did anything like that. That is impossible to yeah. play. Yeah, he was you out know? there, dude. He was so good. He so, was so good. The the um great blues phrasing. Oh my choices. god! Yeah, uh, he was very obviously very influential. Yeah, amongst guitar players. You know, Kirk Hammett has his guitar. I know Greeny. He's got it, and my buddy yeah. knows him, and he said I could come play it one day, which is just crazy. Wow! I wouldn't mind doing that. I mean, do you oh, feel just to touch it? Yeah, just to touch your yeah. hands to it. Do you do so? You 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 kind of feel that right? You know you 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 know that these these old guitars and these guitars that were used by certain people, they've got a magic to them, right? Well, you just, I think there's a psychological factor when, when you pick up a guitar like that yeah, and you know, the music that was played on it. Yeah. It's inspirational. Yeah, that's right. You know, the funny thing though, that I found, um, I got to play a lot of the, the famous guitars that, that people have um like i got to play you know clapton's blackie uh-huh Stratocaster, yeah you know uh i got to play neil young's black les paul what that old neil weird Young's p90 guy. thing with the tremolo on it yeah with the p90 and the firebird pickup and yeah and um both of those guitars if they didn't belong to neil and eric yeah and just it belonged to to just some guy, and he yeah. walked into a vintage guitar store and tried to sell it. You you wouldn't be able to sell it. You know, it's not like <laughs> yeah. this. You know, the, in, in the vintage guitar world, there's this like it's got to be all original, and it's got to right. Those right. Guitars were pieced together. You know. Yeah. Put together things. Right. They're ruined. They're ruined in the eyes They're of a ruined vintage. in a way. Yeah. But, <laughs> Look what they did in the hands of these guys. Yeah. Had yeah. Wild. You know, so man. it's it's the person. It's not the guitar. I think that's true. I just bought a 60 US Paul Jr. Oh, man. Great guitar. Double cutaway. It's fucking great. Yeah. So He's you have the real thin, thin neck. A lot of 60s have that really yeah. skinny neck. Yeah. It's really thin. They have a sound. They do, man. It's, 
Spanky, they call it. They got a spanking sound. Yeah, I plug it into that 53 and it's like, it's magic. Magic. Yeah. So you were, you were, uh, at SNL, but you played. Now tell me about this band, and we'll get to the new record. But you know, I don't want to keep you too long. But I can't imagine we got too much to do. But um, what is this Roger C. Real and the Morgue? Rue Morgue. Rue Are Morgue. You, like you know the French word for yeah. Speak. Roger C. Real um, and the Rue Morgue. Right. So in um, 1971, when I was 19, uh. I was still in my hometown of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I would always play, you know, I've been playing by, by now I'm playing seven nights a week. Yeah. You know, um, I, I would play any gig, whatever kind of music, any place, whatever. I didn't care. Yeah. You know, as long as I was playing, I'm still that way. And, uh, but in 71, a buddy of mine had been to Vietnam. He's a Hammond organ player guy from my hometown. Yeah. And I'd been in bands with him and he had been to Vietnam and then come home and went to the uh, New Haven University, like uh -huh. GI Bill yeah. thing, right? So he's up there in, in the New Haven area. And he calls me up like in the late spring around this time of year. And he says, Hey, our guitar player and his band up there, our guitar player has to go in the hospital and get an operation or something. He said, he's going to be out for two weeks. Can you come up and fill in for him? I said, sure. So I went up to Connecticut. I never went, never looked back. That was you know? it. Yeah, I just got up there and got in this band and I stole the guy's spot, you know, in the band. But um, so I get in this band after about a year or two called the Scratch Band. Scratch Band. And the Scratch Band was, was a, a Connecticut band. I have my old calendars from like 75, 76. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. We would, we would play 250 gigs a year and never leave Connecticut. Really? Yeah. And you know how big Connecticut is, right? I know. Yeah, man. Um, there used to be a lot of places to play live music. So, so I was in that band and that band worked out of a recording studio in a town called Wallingford, Connecticut, which is just north of New Haven. Yeah. And Roger Real was around there at that studio. Got it. And in 1977, you know, by now, uh, we're listening to um, a lot of reggae. It was a big Jamaican community in Hartford, Connecticut. And me and Bob Orsi, one of the other guys in the scratch band, would go up to Hartford to the Beltone record shop and get all these incredible records just in from Jamaica. You know, we're listening to that stuff. And then the punk stuff is starting to come out of England. Yeah. You know, the early, early punk stuff. And Roger Reel's really into that. And I'm listening to that stuff, too. So he says, I want to make a record. You know, would you play on it? Because he knows that I know that style of playing. Right. Uh, and so we made this, this record. And... I thought it was a really good record at the time, but this tiny little studio had no means of getting it out there right. where people could hear it or anything. Yeah. You know? So it kind of just, there it was, and it was something cool I had done. It's one of my favorite records that I've ever recorded on. But uh, And then recently, in the last couple of years, it, it, it resurfaced somehow, and some people put some money into it and remastered it, and 
they've put it out and and I it's making a little noise, you know. So yeah, I listened to it. It's great. There's there's some good stuff on that record. Yeah, and you there's sound great. Stuff. And is, yeah. that, is that still that fifty three telly? That actually on that record, it's a fifty five telly because by then I was buying old guitars, you know, and had a lot of stuff. I still have the fifty two telly that my mom got me. I had that my whole life and played that with everybody. I, I took it on the road with Bob Dylan, you know, for four years and played all over the world. Your first, you Bob played Bob. your first telly with Bob Dylan for four years. Oh yeah. Yeah. When you tour, what, what years, what, what album was that through? Well, I don't know what album. Uh, I played with him live shows from 88. And then the last thing I did was in 1992 when they did that big uh, Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert at Madison square garden. Yeah. I was the, Bob hired me to be like the musical director for that. And uh, and your relationship with him was good? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like how big of an operation was it when you were playing with him? Who, who was in the band? Well, he had, he had in the previous couple years, before 88, when I started with him, he had done a tour with the Grateful Dead backing him up. No, I remember and that, yeah. Then he, then he did a tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreak. Yeah, yeah, There's right. Great band, man. Great yeah. band. Great yeah, line. great band. Yeah. Tom and the Heartbreakers Great. always always delivered. I saw them a lot. But um he had done those tours with those very established bands. Yeah. Right? So now I think he wanted to get uh a small band of just some guys that, that weren't necessarily, you know, an established unit right. that he would have to kind of fit into. Right. He wanted somebody that was gonna fit into him. Right. So he uh he hired me and uh couple buddies of mine and and you know we we went out and played it was just a trio you know uh guitar bass and drums and bob no kidding yeah did you and do a record with him i i never recorded with him other than live stuff, right you know yeah no, i never did any studio work with him and when we're, and when you work with him what he, because he's a guy that approaches his own music so differently you know over and over again right what you know, what was it about the way you guys work together, the, what he expected of you or how did it evolve? How'd you guys do the songs differently? And what's, what's his genius in, in, in approaching I think, his own music? I think that, that what he liked about me and uh, that, that band was that he, he likes to change. He doesn't like to play the song the same way. Right. All the time. You know, a lot of people I've worked with, it's the same every time, you know, they get a, a show together. And yeah. And that's kind of the way it is. And the song goes like this and that's it. Bob liked to change stuff up and, and we were able to follow him. You know, I was, I was able to, cause I always love doing that. I, my favorite thing is to play with a good singer. Yeah. Songwriter person right. and just follow him, just watch their hands. A lot of times with Bob, he would just start some song that we had never heard in front of, <laughs> 15,000 people, you know, and we just play it. I would just follow along with them and, and we'd, we'd play it. It's like, it's like playing with Chuck Berry. In a way. I mean, there's that story about Chuck Berry when, uh, who was it? Was Bruce Springsteen? He always hired the local guys to back him. And I, I don't think it was Bruce. Bruce goes, you know, what are we playing? And Chuck goes, uh, Chuck Berry songs. Chuck Berry songs. Yeah, exactly. So, what was your big break with the, you know, playing these with what got you in with these guys? I mean, how did you start in the legit music business? Yeah, the legit music. I'm still not in the legit music business. Um, 
I was in, so I'm in playing in, in Connecticut, yeah. right? And at some point, a guy named Dan Hartman, who had been in the Edgar Winter Group, he wrote Free Ride. Oh, yeah. And come on and take a free ride. Yeah. He was the bass player in that group. But he wrote great songs, Dan. And Dan had made a record and wanted to go out and, and tour behind his, his record. And he had seen me play with the Scratch Band. Right. And so he had, he had a, a home a studio in Westport, Connecticut. Dan passed away some years ago. But um, another great guy, and happened to be from Pennsylvania. So um, I've played with a lot of Pennsylvania. I played with Daryl Hall and John Oates, you know, Pennsylvania guys. Then I just started meeting people and, and getting these different gigs, you know. And I was at a, a, a party one time in New York City, and David Bowie was at the party. And uh, David had a, a woman named Coco that worked with him for many, many years. Yeah. And Coco came over to me at this party and she said, uh, I'd like you, you know, David wants to meet you. So I go over and say hello to David. I'm thrilled. You know, I can't believe it. And then a little later, she comes back over and she says, David's doing a video tomorrow. Do you want to be in it? Yeah. And I said, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> and she said, great. And she tells me where it is and what time, you know, two o'clock. And I said, should I bring my guitar? And she goes, you're a guitar player? <laughs> And I said, yeah. She goes, wait a minute. And she goes over and then she comes back, bring your guitar. You can play the part of the guitar player in the video. <laughs> yeah. And then I wound up doing a very limited amount of, of live playing with David, but I did get to play with him a little bit. So, you know, you just be somewhere and you'd meet somebody. And then But did you, rec you recorded with Hall & Oates though, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot. A yeah. Lot. I was with them from 79 or 78, maybe to 85. And that's when you got the SNL gig. And then I had been around SNL in the, in the late seventies in the first five years. Oh, cause you were, didn't you, you were involved with Gilda, right? Didn't you marry Gilda? And Gilda were married. Yeah. yeah. Um, she did a, a one woman show on Broadway Yeah. in the summer of 78. And I, I was in the house band there. That's how we met. No kidding. Yeah. She was kind of amazing, right? He was the greatest man. Nice, nice person. Yeah, so funny, so Mark. talented. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um well, I mean, Hall and Oates, they were like hip machines, man. I mean, geez. they were huge. When when I joined them, they were kind of in a slump. They had had like the Sarah Smile Rich Girl, yeah, mid yeah. 70s, 75, 74, 75. Yeah, yeah. And and they got real big. But then some stuff that they did didn't hit as as hard. And um when they hired me. At first, I was getting $200 a week, $100 to play guitar, and $100 to drive one of the station wagons. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and we, and we were playing bars. No kidding. That way, yeah, they went yeah. down that hard? Yeah, yeah. Holy you know, the shit. Business is very, the music business is very unforgiving, you know. Yeah, for sure. You're, yeah, but I mean, it seems. You're or you're not. Wow. But then, then pretty quick, within about a year, uh, we were recording and, and they started having some hits and then private eyes was the first one that was a number one. And then they had, a, then they just got huge, huge, you know, man eater. Yeah. And, and, uh, you make my dreams come true. Uh, so many songs. Wow. Just, so, but in between Sarah smile and man eater, they were playing dives. Yeah. Oh my God. That must've been a fucking lesson. 
Uh, yeah, but for me, you know, it was the same kind of places I'd always been playing when I first started. <laughs> yeah. So it was no different. But then when it took off, then all of a sudden now we're playing, you know, the the big arenas in play in towns and we're traveling and we're they got gigantically huge in Japan. We would go to Japan for weeks. Wow. And base out of Tokyo and fly out to Osaka and Fukuoka and Nagoya and Hokkaido and all those places. That must have been exciting. It was amazing. It was wonderful. And that and that was my first taste of like the big time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Playing with them. So it, it was really exciting and, and you know, we were young and a band like that uh a pop band like that attracts you know uh a lot of beautiful girls that's and, for sure know, yeah yeah like seemed like yeah. it yeah yeah so that's fun it so was. what about like when you when you recorded with jagger yeah was did you feel that there was tension in the band in the stones i didn't know anything about the stones because i at that point i only knew mick yeah later i i got to you know, meet Keith and, and but I mean, you love the Stones and, he, and stuff. Yeah. You love the Stones. You know, Jagger was doing a solo record. How'd he pick you to do it? I mean, we were around. Mick was living in in Manhattan, and I was living in Manhattan, and we were around. Okay, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had met him. Yeah, and uh, I was doing Saturday Night Live, so yeah. he had seen me. Okay, and he 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 would come to the show and stuff. I, I remember sitting with him watching Stevie Ray Vaughan play. Right. Oh wow, really? Yeah, you know, and talking about Stevie and 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 how he played and stuff. Wow. But um, what do you think? What do you think of that? Uh, you know, Stevie was something, huh? Oh, it's great. Stevie to me is the ultimate, and I mean this as a compliment. I mean this not in any derogatory way. Yeah. He's the ultimate bar band guitar player. Right. The ultimate. He could cover somebody else's song cover a Jimi Hendrix song. Yeah. Do it pretty much almost as good, you know, as as Jimmy did it. Yeah. Which is really going somewhere. Yeah. Nobody else nobody else could do that. Right. Yes. Yeah, so Stevie was fabulous and and really based in the blues, knew what he was doing, could really play. And a sweet guy. Yeah, it's so sad like yeah, it's so sad, man, the way he went down because he <laughs> And he was clean and just like, what a fucking horrible yeah. accident. At that place, Alpine Valley, I had just played there two nights before with, with Dylan. Wow. That same gig. And then two days later, Stevie plays and, and that thing happened. And I remember being at Soundcheck and we, we heard, you know, we heard the news. Mm. And and we were we were just devastated. Oh gosh, just terrible. Terrible. I, his brother's a good player too. Jimmy's great and yeah. a great guy. Great, an guy. amazing guy. Yeah, he now he was in the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Yeah, I love him. Love the and Fabulous Thunderbirds. In the seventies, like mid seventies, when I was still in the Scratch Band, living in Connecticut, we would go and see the Thunderbirds. Great, and and man, they were they were great. I loved it. Yeah, I love seeing them. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They came and did this old biker sure. bar, the Golden Inn in between right. Albuquerque and Santa Fe. And I was in high school and I was like, gotta see these fuckers. Yep. Now, so, you grew up out there? You yeah, grew up in Albuquerque? I did. Cool. Yeah. I like Albuquerque. I do too. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a weird place now. Uh, and it got a little beat up, but I love it. Yeah. The whole country got beat up, man. That's for sure. It's still being, How about now? it's still Talk being beat, beat up. up. Yeah. I like the way things are now. The live music 
yeah, business is destroyed. Half the clubs won't come back. They'll go. They're going to go bankrupt. Right. They can't take off three months. Yeah. These little places. Yeah. You know the bigger places. Yeah. You know City Winery will still be there, but the 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 little places. The joints. A lot of them won't be able to come back, and and it's terrible, and it's going to have a an effect for years on music. It's fucking sad, and we're in the middle of it. it. We don't even see. I don't see the. I don't see how we get out of it. We're still in the fucking tunnel here. We're still in the middle of it, and and, uh, nobody, nobody knows. So, well, this record that you did with the Leroy Bell is a pretty powerful record. It's a. It's sort of a, 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 a sort of a socially and politically relevant. Record. These are songs. I'm written. Glad that you hear that. I'm very glad that you hear that. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, these are songs written, you know, f- to the moment that we're living in now. In a lot of ways. Yep. And uh, you know, the it there's a you know there's an intensity to it, an honesty to it. He's a hell of a singer. How did this record come about? Um, my wife Taylor Barton uh, heard some of Leroy's songs. Uh huh. About a year and a half ago now maybe two years ago she heard this stuff and then in january of 2019 we got a hold of Leroy and invited him to come here to the house and sit and i've been looking for a singer for 30 years well you've you done know, a they, few records but not that many right solo records yeah he's he's, he's done some records and, what about and you, great songs. you, you mm-hmm. how many solo records you do i did a few solo records i don't know two or three i don't i don't remember I listened to the first one. It's sort of the the kind of punky one. Oh, that one, yeah, in the world, yeah, in that the was world, nineteen eighty, yeah, yeah, nineteen eighty, yeah. So anyway, uh, Leroy came to the house, and we sat down, and he had just written that song "America," yeah, that's on the record, and I just loved it. You know, I said, "Well, yeah, okay," and we started playing it, and the way I played and the way he sang it, it it just fit together. You know, it was yeah, just one man. of those things. It was exactly what I had been looking for for all those years. So we started recording right away. A friend of mine has a recording studio right near here. Uh We went over and and right away started making making some music. And uh, we wound up getting this deal with BMG. And the record was going to be released at South by Southwest in March. But, of course, that got canceled. Right. You know, again, this whole thing with with the virus closing everything down. Yeah. Now, fortunately, here the digital world will work in our favor that we will be able to get the record out in front of people. Uh-huh. We've made a video already for um for America. Uh, there were just talks starting around today, uh, doing another video for one of the other songs. But yeah, we we Leroy just writes that stuff that it is political and it is saying something, but he doesn't slap you in the face with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like the, uh, like also that song code codine codine. Yeah. That's I've always played that song. I always loved that song. I, when I was back in the folk scare, yeah, I saw Buffy St. Marie play that song probably in 19, 62 or something uh-huh. you know and i always loved that song i've always performed it you know so i was glad to be able to get that on record well yeah it's like you know that that kind of folk groove played you know with that you know with your you know with your electric guitar 
It's got yeah. like it's great. Like you don't I you know, it's familiar, but you don't hear it a lot anymore. And it just it sounds great. And that's a it's a song about drugs, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a song about yeah. codeine. Yeah. yeah, codeine. Yep. And so, you know, that that always, you know, is kind of an evergreen topic. But but who the sure fuck is. who's playing drums, dude? Yeah, right. Who is that? Um now on Codine, I believe that that's Josh Dion, who is a a great drummer, uh lives in Brooklyn, and he's he's kind of like a really happening guy right now and and I was lucky I met him and got him to come and and play on so Josh plays on a bunch of stuff. Sean Pelton plays on some of the songs. On America, it's both Josh and Sean. Yeah. Good drum you know? sound on that record. Guitars sound yeah, great. They, thanks. Yeah, I, I thought that, that we did wind up getting some good sounds. Yeah, man. So, well, I, I mean, I wish you all the luck with that. And also, like, yeah. uh, so now you're still only, do you, do you, you got to have a 59 Les Paul, no? I sold the last one I had. I've had a bunch of them over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, after a while, you know, uh, I just wasn't ever playing a Les Paul. Oh, really? Anymore. That was that was it? Yeah. 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 I had kind of like, you know, worn that out. I still have a couple, you know, but not a not a 59 Sunburst. You know? Oh, no. Oh, right. Right. 54 Junior. Oh, yeah. 54 Junior. One of the first ones that is magic. I saw it on eBay about 10 years ago. I saw the picture of it and I went, that's really primitive. You know, look at that. The finish is weird. Everything about it's weird. And uh, it's just a magical guitar. Oh, that's like, that's a great looking guitar. I can picture it with the one pickup, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like yours. Yeah. But the simple cutaway and the summer's finish. But um, I always play my Telecaster, you know? Yeah. But the guitar that I did a lot of this record with, mm. the Stony Hill record, is uh, a 1962 Epiphone Sheraton. Huh. Like a- wait, I got it right here. I'll show it to you. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Right? Yeah. And this is a, a 62. Yeah. And again, I saw this on eBay. No kidding like about six, eight years ago. And I could tell, I've had Sheratons before. I've had other 62s. I had a blonde 62. But this one, I could tell something about it was magical. And it is. It's it's a either either some uh, somebody worked, you know, at this point, Gibson was making Epiphones. Yeah. By 1958, they started. They bought Epiphones. And, um, this guitar was either made by an employee or was a custom order or something. Cause it's got a lot of unusual things. It's a little bit wider. Yeah. At the, at the nut, you know, the fingerboard's a little wider. Uh-huh. And I like, I like, I got big, big palms. Well, man, it's been great talking to you. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I wanted to ask you, like, I remember a while back you got some flack for uh, playing at the Republican convention. That must've sucked. <laughs> well, it was a um it didn't it doesn't bother me, you know, uh you're always going to like when I was on Saturday night live, I would get fan mail, you know. Yeah. And if I got a thousand letters, you know, 900 of them would really like me and 100 of them would hate me. Yeah. Hate me. There were people that hated me. You know, if you go out in the public, that's going to happen. So, 
here's my thing about a plan of the Republican convention. I'm not a Republican. Yeah. I do not support Donald Trump. <laughs> right. I don't like Donald Trump. <laughs> I think he's done a lot of really ugly things. Yeah. I think his um his subtle approval of this white nationalism yeah, yeah, thing yeah, sure. is just horrible. Yeah. And and has has set this country back a hundred years. Yeah. That's what America's about. Yeah. That's what that song America's yeah, about. Right, yeah. Is that attitude, you know? Um So it's just a gig. You got offered a it was gig. Just a gig. Yeah. I've always I played at the two thousand twelve Republican convention for Mitt Romney. Yeah. And he didn't win. Right? Yeah. I don't care. I've played at mafia weddings. <laughs> yeah. Right? They were great gigs. They paid a lot. They were nice. The food was good. Right. They were nice people. No, I hear you. Know? you. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if they were nice all the time, but they were nice to me. I think we can yeah. we could probably bank on them not being nice all the time. Probably not, you know. Um No, the, I get it. Uh, yeah. The 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 Republican convention, I'm a New York City guy, right? I lived in New York City for forty years. Yeah. Trump before he got to be president, right? All those years before, he was a joke in New York City. Nobody took him seriously. In July of 2016, when I played at that thing, yeah. He wasn't going to win. Yeah. Everybody thought, no, Hillary. Yeah. Hillary's in. Yeah. You know? The first night at that convention when he was introduced and he came out in the in the rock and roll smoke right you know yeah it, it looked like a it looked like a poison show or yeah said, motley crew show yeah, or yeah. Something, right know? and i looked at jeff yeah like, the keyboard player and he looked at me and jeff said he's gonna win yeah. we went yeah we're oh in shit man so the yeah. crowd went crazy the crowd went crazy uh, and here we yeah. are here we are hold up yeah yeah well, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a political person. You know? it, yeah, you just took uh, a gig. I, yeah, it was a gig. It paid a lot. Okay. You know, I got to pay all my guys, give them a real good payday for three or four days' work, and I took home a bunch of money. You know, um, but I never ever thought when I when I first got the gig, yeah. and took the, I never thought he was going to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? well, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't now that I know where the guy's really at. I would never do it again. Sure. Yeah. No, you're not going to play Trump's party. Yeah. No. Well, that's good. Well, man, I wish you great luck with this record. And uh, it was certainly great talking to you. I love talking about Thank music. You, and, uh, you know, and take care of yourself, man. Thank you. Yeah. You too. Okay. That was GE and me talking guitars and whatnot. Uh, the new album coming out in August is uh, called Stony Hill. It's a collaboration with the soul singer Leroy Bell. And don't forget, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon helps creators build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. Then fans get access to an exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued together. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Let's play some... Uh guitar.
lives. <laughs>